let's think about uh, the scriptures this morning as we uh, will be led uh, by Char into thinking about what does it look like to be a creative minority as we live as strangers in this strange land called the world around us. Will you stand up and follow with me as we read from uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll read verses 1 through 14 this morning. So this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, and to the priests, and to the prophets, and to all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother and court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem and the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisah, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And the letter said this, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Have many sons. Marry. Have many sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. And also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Don't let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams that encourage you. That I'm sorry, I'll say that again. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed, I will come to you and I will fulfill my good promise to you. I will bring you back to your place, to my place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call on me and pray to me And I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is God's word for us today. You can be seated. All right. Thank you, Mike. Well, we are continuing our 
teaching through the year of biblical literacy. If it's your first time, uh, we've dedicated this whole year to uh, reading the Bible uh, for ourselves first hand, well, firsthand. Um, and we're doing that because we've found just that most Christians uh, have not read their Bibles have not read the Bible all the way through, or do not read their Bibles. And many people in our churches are just getting their theology from podcasts, they're getting it from Christian books, and they don't actually know the Bible. And so we have a culture that uses the Bible now to critique a biblically illiterate church. And so we want to be a church that knows God's Word firsthand, knows what, it's, knows what it teaches, and people who are shaped by the story of God. So along with that, we're teaching through the Bible on Sunday mornings, the main themes, characters. And so currently, we're doing a miniseries called A Creative Minority. And we're using the book of Daniel as a kind of catalyst for how the people of God live faithfully as a religious minority. Now, Jonathan Sachs, he's the UK's chief rabbi. He coined this term creative minority, and he used it to describe the way the Jews have existed throughout history, beginning with the exile. He talks about how they maintained their distinction, but not just surviving. You know, they didn't just start a ghetto at that time and just kind of keep to themselves, but they contributed to the flourishing of the world through redemptive participation. He writes, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is a demanding and risk-laden task. Now, I mentioned to you guys a while ago, but <clears throat> I think during the, the 90s and the early 2000s, we saw a big push for the missional movement in the church. And the idea of the missional movement was be in culture, engage culture, take the church out into the culture. And, you know, maybe during the 80s and early 90s, the church was known for kind of copying culture and having its own subculture. We can think about, you know, like the different... I, I, I'm a musician, so I always think about just the terrible attempts by... Uh, Christians to make music uh, and basically to copy everything else that was on the radio and have our own version of it. It's like, well, you know, if, you know, the culture has Creed and Hoobastink and all this, well, we have Jeremy Camp, you know, and we've got our guy or, you know, if the, you know, culture has Beyonce, then, you know, we have, you know, our version of Beyonce, you know, and we were just like just copying in so many ways and never doing it as well as the culture was. But something interesting that happened during this time is we sent some of our most talented people out into culture saying engage with culture, engage with culture, uh, represent the gospel. And the problem is culture told a better story. Culture had more uh, just depth to it. And so these artists, these um, professionals, they never came back to the church. They were colonized by the culture. And see, what, what happens with a creative minority and why we're specifically looking at the book of Daniel, I mean, we looked at Jeremiah 29 this morning, but why we're looking at the book of Daniel is because Daniel and his friends, somehow they were able to balance this 
difficult thing of being in the culture and immersed in the culture and yet staying true to their faith, keeping the flame burning like Jonathan Sachs says in his description of a creative minority. And I do think that we still need to be missional as the church. I think that because God created the world, God has created humans, and God is the creator, right, of culture, we, the church, need to engage in every part of culture, but we need to do it with a robust faith. We need to do it with a a robust covenantal community. We need to do it through a robust narrative of scripture and understanding of who we are, what our mission is, and all that to say, this is what we're going to talk about this morning, right? So I had... um, Mike read for us Jeremiah 29, 11, because what had happened with the Jews when they were taken to Babylon is that they thought that they would be corrupted by Babylon, so they settled on the river Chebar, and they would not go into the city, and God writes this letter to them. He says, no, go into the city, engage, do all this, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have called you, cultivate life in it, seek the peace of it, for in its peace you will find peace. And this is what Daniel and his friends did. They were Babylonian in every sense of the word, worked for the government, dressed Babylonian, talked Babylonian, succeeded in Babylon, yet they were faithful Jews, They were faithful faithful to the covenant of Yahweh, to the covenant of Moses, to the covenant of Abraham, and they lived that out. And you can just see story after story in the first six chapters of the book of Daniel how this goes down. How they actually not only stand out in the culture, but end up influencing the culture around them. You've got just all these, you know, ups and downs in the story where the king says one thing, and he looks like he's the authority of it, and Daniel and or Daniel and his friends say, no, we're actually going to do this thing. And in the end, the king's like, yeah, you should do that thing. That's the thing to do. Your God's the God uh, of, over all the other gods. And you see the king changing his mind. So Daniel and his friends are not influenced by the culture, but they are cultural influencers. Now, Many theologians, commentators, pastors have thought long and hard about the book of Daniel. And many see that part of what the book of Daniel does is it teaches the people of God, and I hope it will teach us, how we live faithfully to Jesus in a culture that has a competing vision of what it means to be human that has a competing vision of human flourishing, that has a competing vision of freedom, a competing vision of life, that it teaches us how we live in a culture like this and not just exist, but live, but cultivate a kingdom of God counterculture. John Tyson, he's a pastor of Church of the City in New York. He's adapted David Augsburger's definition of community and puts it this way. He says, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the world. And so this morning, what I want to do is talk about this vision of a creative minority and how God might be redirecting our church and community to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of our city. And this takes all of us. It's easy to kind of think, oh, well, 
this doesn't really refer to me. You know, I don't have gifts or I don't have, you know, this influence that maybe Char's talking about this morning or these, you know, theologians or missiologists have talked about this morning. That's a lie. Every single one of us have influence and can have a, a positive influence for the kingdom of God and for Jesus' vision for what it means to flourish as humanity. I think what, we, we, what we've done in the past is we've just lacked that biblical vision because we're not people of the book. I can't tell you how many young Christians I've met with and even older Christians who just have never cultivated this image of God identity that is clear in scripture that you know what do we do after okay so I've been saved saved right and we throw that term around and sometimes you know after the kind of the honeymoon phase of becoming a Christian and seeing you know many things in our life change and our priorities change our perspective change and maybe reading through the Bible one time we're kind of like okay all right and then we kind of, after that, search for an identity to hang our hat on, search for something kind of to live out of. But rarely do we dive deeper into Scripture and ask, who is God called humanity to be? And then, who is God called me to be? It's kind of like Jesus saves me, and then I just kind of figure it out. It's like, choose your own adventure, church. Choose your own adventure, Christian. That is not what we find in Scripture. What we find in Scripture is that we are to be conformed to the image of his dear Son. That we, through evangelists, prophets, pastors, and teachers, are to be equipped so that we collectively grow up into mature manhood and to the fullness of the stature of Christ. And so that we shine as lights in a dark world around us. This is what God calls us to. He calls us to cultivate this image of God through following Jesus and through doing that together. And many of us, we've just left this off. Maybe we think it's too hard. Maybe we don't have a vision for it. Maybe no one's ever told us, well, you know what? Good news. I'm going to tell you this morning. <laughs> I'm going to give you a vision for this. And, you know, we talk about this often at Refuge, so this isn't the first time we're doing this, but I hope this morning to recapture your hearts through God's vision of what it means to be his people for the renewal of our city, for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God. So, first, before we get into creative minority, I think we need to think about the call to be salt and light that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. So when we think about what it means to be a creative minority, we should be thinking in terms of Jesus' radical vision of the kingdom of God and its people as seen in the Sermon on the Mount. A people whose whole world and life is radically different, right? So the world culture goes one way, and Jesus' people are kingdom-tuned people. I love what Jehoiakim Jeremiah says. He says, what is taught here in the Sermon on the Mount are symptoms, signs, and examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You, church should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened in the person of Jesus Christ. So we do that by living out the vision of this Sermon on the Mount, and in that way we are salt and light. Karl Barth, um, a theologian who lived many, many years ago, uh, he says this, the church exists 
Okay, so when we're thinking about ourselves collectively or even individually, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign, which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. Let me read that one more time. It's, it's a beautiful vision. The church exists to set up in the world a new sign. Think of like Hollywood. Think of San Francisco. Think about the billboards. Coming attraction. This movie. This place. This thing, right? Come here. Join us. Be a part of this. You're a sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. This means that our kingdom witness isn't just about critiquing or deconstructing culture, but about living out a new kingdom of God vision for human identity, purpose, and flourishing. And like Barth says, this will include a radical dissimilarity and new incredible hope and potential. So, how do we actually do this? That sounds fantastical, Char. Well, wow, I'm having a thing right now. Six easy steps to being a creative, you laugh, to being a creative minority. Rest assured, we are only going to do three this morning. I have my sermon all ready to go next week. Uh, So here they are, six, if you're taking notes, I think they should be on the screen. Number one, covenantal community. Number two, a compelling narrative. Number three, countercultural ethics. Number four, counterformational practice. Number five, kingdom of God allegiance. Number six, redemptive participation. As I said, we'll only look the first three this morning. So, number one, covenantal community. Now, if, as we discussed last week, the civic religion of America. And our culture is radical individualism and the pursuit of individual happiness. Then the New Testament call to radical community is such a powerful, disruptive witness of a creative minority. I don't think it's a mistake that the story we looked at last week is not about one man who will not bow to the image set up by the king, but a community who does not bow. Even if they're small, right, only three, it's still a community. It's not a couple. It's not an individual. It's three. It's a community collective effort to be faithful witnesses of the kingdom of God, which is one reason why all of the New Testament epistles are written to a community. Now, when was the last time you read through Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Peter, uh, I mean, you're going to read these in just like a month or something, but anybody read the, the epistles recently? So, no, nobody did. Okay, well, two people did, three people did. Okay. It's interesting because I think oftentimes as we read these, we read them uh, just in isolation. We read them as, these are Paul's specific commands to individual Christians. And, of course, they are in one sense is, is that each person needs to pursue these things. But you think about, we often take this passage, um, you know, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, right? That comes from First Peter. 
And so we have a whole group of apologists with their, like, that's our, that's our ministry to everyone in answer, right? You know, and you have a whole ministries that are built around this one verse. And I think many Christians have taken this to be like, okay, every single Christian needs to do evangelism and apologetics. And so we individualize this, and we think that we have to go out to, you know, the places where people hang out. You know, people are trying to have a good time down at the, you know, um, at the fair. People are trying to have a good time at the Wednesday night market. And we're like, excuse me, can we tell you about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? You know, we're trying to interrupt them, we're trying to get popcorn or something like that. We're just making the most awkward, like, unhuman interaction possible. No, Peter writes this to a community that is living out the collective vision of the kingdom of God. And as this community lives this out, the community around it takes notice and says, tell us, tell us about your way of life. Tell us about your principles. Tell us about your ethics. Tell us your story. It is not about individual evangelism. And yet... Many times God does open those doors, but it's not up to one individual to make known the kingdom of God in their own efforts. It is a community collective. It is up to us to live that out. And as we do, the community around us realizes it's a community effort to image the God who is himself a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's ridiculous to think that we can do this on our own. A covenantal community then... And here's where we get into this disruptive witness, creative minority. A covenantal community is committed to regular presence and investment in one another. I have been waiting to share this with you. Here we go. Okay, listen to this. John Stott wrote this almost 40 years ago. Listen to what John Stott said. It's difficult to imagine the world in A.D. 2000. Oh, is it, John? Right? By which time, versatile microprocessors are likely to be as common, I know, it's funny, huh? As simple calculators are today. We should certainly welcome the fact that the silicon chip will transcend human brain power as much as the machine has transcended human muscle power. Much less welcome will be the probable reduction of human contact as the new electronic network renders personal relationships ever less necessary. In such a dehumanized society, the fellowship of the local church will become increasingly important, whose members meet one another and talk and listen to one another in person rather than on screen. In this human context of mutual love, the speaking and hearing of the word of God is likely to become more necessary for the preservation of our humanness, not less. So, first of all, a covenant community, a community that is committed to one another, imaging the the God who is triune, imaging the kingdom of God, taking time weekly not just to pursue our individual desires and hobbies or Sabbath, right? The way that we can even individualize Sabbath and make it, you know, selfish. But seeing a community that meets together with people who are different. Different in age, different in career, different in political views, different in a myriad of ways. To meet face-to-face for mutual encouragement and love to gather around the word of God. 
to be formed by it, to gather around sacrament, to worship Jesus our King. This is hugely counterformational in our day and age. Another aspect of this dis- disruptive witness through covenant community, in our day and age of individualism, all you have to do to be different is simply practice the New Testament one another commands. Okay, I'm just going to tell a quick story. Grace and I were at Sephora the other night because I needed some makeup. Um, and, um, yeah, I've got bad skin. Uh, so we were at Sephora, and um, something happened where, like, they rang Grace up wrong, and she's like, oh, let me help this other person first. And so Grace is waiting. She's got this coupon on her phone. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And uh, these two girls are there, and they're just kind of acting just socially awkward, and we're just waiting and talking, you know, and, and the girl's trying to pull up this coupon. And Grace just interjects and says, oh, I have it. Like, you can use my coupon. And they're like, oh, wow, really? Thank you so much. And then for the next 10 minutes, you are so nice. Oh, my gosh, wow, that's just so kind of you. It's just so kind of you. It's like, yeah, it's right here on my phone. Like, how hard was that? And it was really interesting. The girl, when she turned to thank Grace, Grace, you know, it's like about yay high, right, you know? And the girl does this. She's like, thank you. Won't look her in the eye. Won't make that human connection or contact, even though she's, she's recognizing that Grace did something nice for her, I guess, right? Sacrificed for her, went out of her way for her. Guys, that is where our culture is at. This girl was shocked by how patient we were to wait in line and just let her do her thing and that we interacted with her. It does not take a whole lot to stand out in our culture right now, which is really sad. But it also puts it really low for us Christians, right? Like, hey, you you don't have to do a lot. (laughs) Just be kind, and you'll be doing so much more than anyone else. So, you know, what I'm saying here, a covenantal community that practices this just way of life of others first. But then a community, a collective community, that practices this, The Jesus way of living, the command to love one another as Jesus has loved us, the command to bear one another's burdens, the command to put the needs of others before your own needs, the command to actually use our money for others rather than for, you know, the building of our own kingdom and identity. This can be a radical, disruptive witness for the kingdom of God. See, what we're seeing in our culture is a consumer community. And I don't mean just a community of consumers, but I mean that relationships are built upon a consumer model and not a covenantal model, which means that I will stay in relationship with you as long as the emotional costs are low. As soon as the emotional costs are high, I have the right to break contract with you and start a contract with another person who is less emotionally costly to me. This is not the call to Jesus' people. But the call to Jesus' people is covenant community. For better or for worse, we should be thinking in terms of the way the family is to work, the way that marriage is to work. I remember you know, a couple years ago we were doing something on uh, relationships and we were talking about how it's so sad that we have just gone after the culture and said that the only covenant relationship there is is marriage. That is not true. Friendship in the church should be covenant friendship. Families should covenant with one another. I believe what we did this morning with Ryan and Kristen is a covenant. 
We enter into an agreement with them. We will walk with you. We will support you. We will not give up on you when your children rebel. We will not give up on you when your marriage gets hard. That's covenant community. And most of our culture doesn't know what that looks like because they do not know the self-giving, sacrificial love of Jesus. But we do. We do. And when we live that out, church, Oh, it is a disruptive witness for the kingdom of God. Now, when you look at the early church and all that they did and how they stood out among the Roman pagans, how they shook the known world, when you just look at it, they were this covenantal community. So there was a time where the plagues had hit Rome. And this covenantal community, what they began to do is as family members put grandma and grandpa and sick children outside their homes to be eaten by the plague, to be destroyed by it, as uh, Roman citizens would take their babies out to the forest to be eaten by wolves, the Christian community would take those older people, those people who were bound to die, they would take them into their own homes and they would nurse them at the cost of their own life. The church would go and seek these babies in the forest and raise them at the cost of their own life. And this was the witness that turned the world upside down. It was this covenant community that didn't just exist for these people, but broke out into the broader community. Now, I think of our efforts as a community to collectively fast and pray once a month for specific needs in our wider community. That is a covenantal community witness. We should keep doing that, right? To, we, we, to see it as our communal responsibility to pray for and intercede for the needs and brokenness of our city. This is a work of disruptive witness. To talk about mental health awareness, to talk about being good stewards of the earth, this is what the covenantal community is to do, is to break out as witnesses for the kingdom of God. I think about our efforts, along with other churches, to address foster care and to support these children through RFK, through Care Portal, through Foster the Bay. And then I ask, in what other ways might the Spirit be calling and leading us to work for the renewal of our city, this work of disruptive witness? Can I also add, because here I said this a moment ago, but you know, for some of you it might be like, well, what can I do, right? I'm a stay-at-home mom. So I have this book by Andy Crouch, who is, I think, the chief editor for Christianity Today. He writes a book you know, this thick on culture-making, and he has a huge second, section of that dedicated to the family. The family and the discipling and rearing of the family is one of the most counterformational, disruptive witnesses that you can give for the kingdom of God. And yet, how we farm our children out. And I'm not just talking, I, Grace and I homeschool, we have our own convictions behind why we did that. We didn't do it because we thought that they would be corrupted. That's not why we did it. We did it because we wanted to be very, very intentional because of the, just our rhythms of life, we wanted to be very intentional about forming our children in these early years. And that's just our conviction, why we did this thing. But I see parents and groups of people farming out their children, thinking that 
children's ministry is going to do the work of making them a disciple of Jesus, that Awanas is going to do the work of making them a disciple of Jesus, that, you know, school is going to teach them morality and ethics. No, it's not. Mom and dad, you are the main examples of this in their lives. And it is up to you to form that disruptive witness. So if you are a stay-at-home mom or you are a stay-at-home dad, the work of discipling your children can be such a powerful force for the kingdom of God. And Grace and I, the way we do this, we have intentional times where we, you know, breakfast is a big thing in our family for Formation, dinner is a big part of formation in our family. But also, we love to, like, we went and saw a movie. And so after the movie, we just talk about it. What did you think? That was crazy. What about that part? That was weird. What about that thing? What about those words that they said? What do you guys think about that? We're just asking questions and letting them ask questions. And we're just dialoguing constantly about life. When we, when we have been, Hudson is the one that I'm always so afraid of. Because he... <laughs> He, whenever we're out, he notices people. And, you know, in, in our city, there's a lot of people to notice, right? Like, there's some interesting things that happen in our city and ways that people try to express themselves. And so we were somewhere one time, and Hudson noticed, you know, a, a man that was dressed a certain way. And immediately his eyes light up, and he looks at me, and he bows open his mouth. I'm like, we'll talk in the car. <laughs> we'll talk in the car. And we ended up just having a great conversation just about people and people who might be in pain. And, you know, and just, again, just talking about the humanness and the nuances of people and their brokenness and their identities and these things. Anyway, all that to say, church, even if you are not an influencer, even if you're not a teacher, if, you're not, uh, if you don't own your own business, if you are not a social worker or a counselor, you have influence and you have the ability to train your children as a disruptive witness for the kingdom of God. And if we don't do it, who will? What will happen to the kingdom of God? Of course, God has his remnant. God will do his thing because God is faithful, but we'll miss out on that. Anyway, Patrick McGrath sent this to me this week. So good. I mentioned last week that Daniel and his friends grew up during the time of great revival and renewal in Israel. And this was right before the exile. And so um, Patrick and I were talking about this, and, and he sent this to me. Um, and all of that was led by Josiah the king. So he, it, this is, comes from David Helm, Daniel for you, his commentary. It says, the kind of resolve we see in Daniel and his friends comes from the rich, fertile soil of a childhood under a great and godly king. People of resolve are fashioned. They are made. They rarely simply appear. Can't tell you how many times I've sat down with uh, in premarital and told the new to be husband or wife, husbands are not born, they are forged. Wives are not born, they are forged. You become a husband, you become a wife, you become a mother, you become a father. And likewise, people of resolve are fashioned, they are made. They rarely simply appear. And so this prompts us, he says, to ask ourselves, what kind of young people are we raising in our churches? Let us realize or be reminded of the truth that raising children for God is one of the most important businesses done on earth. And all Christians, whether parents or not, are involved in this business because we are all part of a church family. We need a generation of Daniel, so let us commit to growing them. Love that. 
So God, uh, you know, I mentioned this before about the early church, but God has used such covenantal communities many times in history. And I know I just vaguely pointed out to, you know, what happened between the pagans and the church during the, the Roman plague. But has anyone in here heard of the Clapham sect? Uh, or a name, William Wilberforce. Maybe you've heard of him before, right? Yeah. The abolition of slavery in the UK. This along with the liberation of slaves and penal reform, were accomplished by a group of families that committed themselves to this because of their understanding of how the church and the kingdom of God work together. They dedicated the whole of their lives. And, you know, you, you watch that movie. I think it's Amazing Grace is the movie. It came out maybe 10 years ago or so. And it, does, it, it alludes to the fact, but you guys, this was a lifelong journey that these people committed themselves to. It was over a lifetime that they saw these things. It wasn't just like, oh, all the people came together and worked hard you know, for a year and they brought the abolition of slavery. No, it was a lifetime, but it was a whole life commitment to seeing the kingdom of God brought on earth and specifically to the slave community of the U.K., Though it took decades through their efforts, they brought about these reforms that witnessed God's kingdom principles. Church, we, and I'm not just saying refuge, but yes, refuge, we need to reclaim this fundamental identity as a covenantal community. My professor, he loves to talk about the church in this way. The church runs to the place of pain to bring service and comfort at cost to their own comfort and go away being incredibly fulfilled. The church runs to the place of pain to bring service and comfort at the cost of their own comfort and go away being incredibly fulfilled. So the first step of a creative minority is that covenantal community lives life together, lives out the one another's, meets regularly for the mutual benefit, and that community breaks out into the broader community to bring signs, billboards of the kingdom of God. The second thing, uh, what time do I have? Oh my gosh, are you serious? Okay, so we're going to do four next week, and we're going to do two this week. Gosh, what? Yeah, no, it's not you, it's me. You were concise. A compelling narrative. Wow. This is my longest point. <laughs> um, so narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. It's a quote by Babette Buster. So we talk about this all the time at Refuge, but there are so many narratives, stories, worldviews, through politics, companies, products, gurus, self-help, religious leaders, you know, so on and so forth, that are competing for our allegiance, that are competing for our desires. And everyone is telling some kind of redemptive narrative. We call it creation, but you know, everyone has a view of how the world should be. We call it fall. Everyone has a view of what is wrong with the world. We call this redemption. Everyone has a view of how it can be put right. And then finally, we call it restoration. But everyone has a utopian vision of flourishing. And last week, we talked about America's civil religion of liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Now, listen to this. I got this from Mark Sayers. He kind of mapped out the secular redemptive narrative because this is very popular where we live. So Eden, or creation, is the inner self. Fall or sin is busyness, responsibility, 
cultural life or demands, marriage, any responsibility put on me by others, life trauma of some sort, marriage, divorce, any responsibilities that bring low self-esteem or unhappiness. That is the fall. That is sin. That is what's wrong with the world. Redemption. It's no wonder REI is kicking butt. Camping, outdoors, yoga, right? They're just like, yep, finger right on the pulse. Anything that gets me back in touch with my inner child, inner self, or inner peace, anything that brings freedom from restraint is the cleansing of the inner self. Washing in the blood. And finally, restoration or new creation is self-realization and pleasure. And sadly, many Christians, as I was saying before, because we do not have a robust narrative or grasp of the story of God and what God has created us for, we fall into this. We, we bring this into our Christianity. We make this modgepodge, a smorgasbord of religiosity, and we find that we are actually more spiritual than we are religious. It's turned into a totally self-determined quest, and I will add this, it cannot actually deliver on its promises of fulfillment. And this is, this is a beautiful thing, right? Because Christians know that there will be an inevitable breakdown in this redemptive narrative. Because we've been made by God, we have been made for God, we have been made in his image, made for creativity, made to rule. Work is not just building, you know, monuments for Pharaoh. It's just not a necessary evil. We were created to create. We were created to rule over things. To administrate, to manage, this is what it means to be human. And our culture is saying, no, all of that is a restraint on who you actually are. Break out of that and find yourself. Good luck. Because this is who God has created humans to be. And so we know that we have been made by God and that we're living in God's world. And so wherever we deny that, there will be a cross-section, there will be a breakdown, there will be a rub in the culture. And it offers us an opportunity to share the biblical redemptive narrative. See, in the secular narrative, it offers incredible freedom, but little meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. So we can say, oh, yeah, in, in the Bible... You have limited freedom, absolutely. You've been made by God, you've been made for God, you've been made to rule, you've been made to create. You have to live within those confines to discover flourishing under the king. But let me tell you, you will discover incredible meaning and fulfillment. To know not that you just have this desire in you to create, but that the God of the cosmos has actually put that in you and has invited you to create along with him to build his kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. What an identity to live out of. What an invitation. What a mission to join. And so we have this opportunity then to interject the redemptive narrative. 
And I don't have time to go into the redemptive narrative because I talk too much. But let me just say this, right? So we have the fall, we have sin, and sin is a removal from God, a removal from our true identity in God, from our true self, from our true purpose. It brings breakdown and chaos and evil into the world. But redemption is this. I do not find myself. God comes looking for me, and he brings me back to himself through the blood of his son, at the cost of life to Jesus Christ, I have been brought back to my father. I have been given that identity as a child of God, and I've been given this incredible invitation. Though I am a rebel, though I am a sinner, I can be cleansed, I can be part of the family, and I can one day rule and reign with Jesus Christ over the world as Adam and Eve were created and called to do in the beginning. And the kingdom of God, the restored people, healed relationships, healed self, restored creation, the Bible says will last forever and ever and ever. And it will go on and there will be so much more to discover. There will be so much more to create with God as we build and enjoy the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. Every human is made in God's image, and our purpose is to join him in the renewal of all things. What an identity to live out of. And yet, we of all people should be first in line for that. We should be the ones that are engaging the most with that. Sadly, in the church, we have often told the church, right, that it's actually the job of pastors, evangelists, and missionaries to do the real kingdom work. Just give us your money. That's your job. You work real hard out in the world, and you just give us your money, and that's you doing kingdom work. No. Actually, God has given apostles, pastors, prophets, evangelists, and teachers to equip the saints, I believe, to build the kingdom of God, to take the kingdom of God into every nook and cranny of culture. That's what we see in Ephesians 4. So a creative minority then takes this alternative vision of, of, of the kingdom of God and the narrative of what we humans are created for and brings that to bear upon the culture. Christians then, we should see this Sunday morning gathered around the word, gathered around preaching as protest or subversive literature. It's so freaking punk rock. I love it, right? C.S. Lewis, he had this, inc- this incredible insight where he said, you know, he was living at wartime, World War II, and he said, you know, Christians are just, we're so, like, boring. He said, when you go to the gathering of God's people, you should see this as you are living in enemy-occupied territory, and you are going to a secret meeting to hear about the overthrow of this government, this kingdom and you're in on it you are a part of this mission and this calling to receive this instruction to receive these steps of the mission and to join God in the renewal of all things that's how we should see our gathering together we are a subversive witness we are a disruptive witness in this community we are anarchists for the kingdom of God I got that from G.K. Chesterton I can't say it's original I'm sorry um Oh my gosh, I just have pages and pages of notes. What in the world? Well, this could be a 10-week series. Okay, um, let me just end with this. We'll do some shorter stuff on the back end. Okay, so, and now I don't even know where I am. I'm usually, ask anybody, I'm not usually this disorganized. 
They're like, yes, he is. Um, there it is. Okay. So, so where's the cross-section? Where do we engage with culture? Uh, I've been having this conversation with a few pastor friends trying to figure out what is the medium. Um, so for Paul, it was the, you know, Aeropagus. It was the marketplace. This is where they would go and they would share ideas. For my parents, it was music. Music was the medium. And this is where sh- uh, people would come together and just share music and share ideas. I believe right now our culture is telling the most provocative, disruptive stories. And what I mean by that is our culture tells stories in order to make sense of the world, right? It's like bring your worldview to bear upon reality. And the way that our culture is doing this primarily right now is through Netflix, through Hulu, through Amazon. These are some of the, like, best storytellers right now in our culture. And, you know, there's still, still some film out there that's okay, right? Isn't it funny how it's changed? You know, like, we are not watching Full House anymore, right? It's like, TV's amazing, the stories that are being told. So our culture is producing really good stories right now. And what I mean by that is there are stories that are powerful. They're shaking. They're stirring stories. And they tell them through tragedy. Uh, some powerful stirring stories of redemption. And because film is one of the most popular mediums of storytelling in our culture, everyone is engaging in these stories. And so, as I said, uh, oh, and the good ones are grabbing at our hearts, at the hearts of our culture and causing disruption. They're causing this cross-section, a breakdown of worldview and reality. The problem is, in our distracted age, no one sits long enough with them for it to bring any lasting effect. Like, oh man, I binge-watched Mindhunter, and then I just moved on to The Killing, and then after that, I watched, like, all the Marvel movies, and man... You know, what do I do? I finish it, I tweet about it, I post to Instagram, or just look at Twitter, look at Instagram, check my Facebook, and move along to the next show to binge watch. We become addicted to the disruption rather than leaning into the disruption to discern what is causing it. Anybody following me? Yeah, okay, so this is what I'm talking about. Like, I was 14 years old living in London. I was so lonely. I had no friends. My parents took me over there. You know, we were missionaries and all this. And they took me, and I got to go see Titanic with my sister and a bunch of girls, right? And I went and saw Titanic, and I think it was, like, maybe one of the first times I had really seen a movie where, like, there's no happy ending. And I'm, like, 14 days later, Jack, like, he died, you know? (laughs) Like, just like a breakdown of reality. Like, I grew up in a Christian home where, like, it's a happy ending. You know, the kingdom of God. Jesus dies for our sins, and we're forgiven, and heaven, and, you know. And I saw this movie, and it ruined me. And you know what? I think our culture is telling some really great stories right now that are doing exactly that. It ruined a 14-year-old boy that had these rose-colored lenses of seeing the world say, this is not reality. This is not actually the way the world works. It's Titanic. I know. It's pathetic. Um... But we do this again and again and again in our culture. Church, how can we seize this moment? If this is one of the, like, the main ways that our culture is telling stories, and, and the culture is actually doing this work of disruptive witness and bringing this cross-section and this breakdown of worldview, how can we engage with that? What if, what if we had viewing parties TV show clubs. I know some of you ladies already do this. Uh, But where we talked about the movies and what we thought and how we were moved 
and press into these moments where we felt the tension of our worldview and reality collide? What if we were the ones to cultivate that disruptive moment and to gather people together around that, to cultivate that for our culture? Alan Noble, in his book, Disruptive Witness, he says this, give priority to stories that haunt you, unsettle you, and expand you, whether through beauty, delight, or tragedy. What if we gathered people in work or, you know, just our friends group, and we gathered them together to do this? What if we were the ones to host these evenings with our neighbors, mutually sharing our perspective, thoughts, affirmations, or objections to a film, to its message and its characters, not so that we can slam people with our superior narrative of the Bible, right? Let me tell you about my superior redemptive narrative, right? But so we can facilitate this ambivalence and use this as a way to stir up hunger for a worldview that makes sense of the real world. A tension that we believe is only found through Jesus and the good news. You know, Christianity and Buddhism are the only religions in the world that actually try to make sense of suffering and death. Everyone else, good luck. What a great opportunity for us to take these mediums of storytelling and film and to engage with that and to show or to allow that disruption to happen so that we can represent this worldview that only makes sense with the real world. So that's a part of what it means to be a creative minority. And I think that there are other ways that we can do this, church. And as I said, there are many influencers in this room, and we need to start thinking in this way of a disruptive witness, a creative minority for the renewal of the city for the kingdom of God. Next week, we'll look at ethics and a bunch of other stuff. Um, Lord, um, I know that this morning is not so much about um, the fact that we've been forgiven of our sin. It's not so much about, you know, just... Navel gazing and you know just focusing on how we're missing it, but it really is a call to action. And of course, that call to action comes because we have been redeemed, because we believe that we have been rescued in Jesus, and that this is the greatest news that God has finally returned to the world to make all things new at the cost of His own life. We pray, Lord, that we our hearts would be stirred for this incredible redemptive story. Lord, that Refuge, along with the other churches in Santa Rosa and Sonoma County, would join you in your kingdom work of being disruptive witnesses to point to and to labor for the kingdom of God so that many in our city would come to know the king, the king who heals, the king who walks with us, the king who knows us by name, the king who bears our burdens, the king, the king who fights our enemies and defeats them for us, the king who lays down his life for us, the king who gives us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Lord, do that work of stirring up our hearts, capturing our desires and our imaginations to labor for the kingdom of God. Lord, for the healing and renewal of our city. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.